Praise the Lord. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving weekend to you, and uh, Merry Christmas. And as a gift to Jay Baker, we will not be having growth track this week or this month uh, because uh, we're not having service on Christmas Day, and next week is Christmas, uh, Mill City Christmas, so that will uh, bless him to uh, find something else to do here at the church <laughs> during second service. Well, if you're new to Mill City, I'm here to bring your greatest fears uh, to life. We are talking about money today. Why don't we open our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with the back half of verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Well, that's, we could probably just stop right there and stay there for the rest of the morning, but we won't. We'll go on. Um, more about them. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. It's interesting how Paul many times will, in the midst of some other context, he starts talking about God and he cannot stop. And he just continues to give him glory. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. That's the end of the book. Actually, that's the end of 1 Timothy. Uh, that's almost all of chapter 6. Paul is wrapping up this letter 
with a charge and a warning. And there are multiple charges here in chapter 6. Right out of the gates, he said, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. It's a very clear charge. What is he referring to? Well, in the very next verse, he describes sound instruction in our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching. That's the charge. That's what we are to be doing. And so in this short letter, we have seen a lot of sound instruction, a lot of godly teaching. In fact, just over the last several weeks, we've seen solid, wise, godly teaching to us as the church, to the men of the church, to the women of the church, to the leaders of the church, to the pastor. Last week, we saw wise counsel, godly teaching on how to interact with each other and others. And I ended with verse 1 of chapter 6 as the main reason for our behavior towards others, and that is so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. We are ambassadors to the world. Then in verse 11 and 12, Paul charges us with a list of characteristics. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. In verse 20, he says, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Can you see a sense of effort in there? There are things that we do as believers, as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. That's part of the charge. Now, let me just say this. God has done all of the work of salvation. We don't add anything to our salvation. That is a gift of God. But we play a part in our usefulness to God. And what do I mean by that? Well, look at John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. God has done all of the work of salvation, so we don't add anything to that. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples, not unlike so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. God does all of the work for our salvation. Praise God. We don't have to work for our salvation. We can't pay anything for our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. But bearing fruit is important to God. In fact, it says it right here in verse 8. Bearing fruit is how people know that you're a disciple of Christ. If you don't bear fruit, though, you are at risk. You are at risk of what? Well, Jesus says he cuts off branches that don't bear fruit. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is part of the warning again from Paul to Timothy. Verse 5 says, some people have been robbed of truth. In verse 10, he says, some have wandered 
from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And verse 21 says, some have departed the faith. So how do you protect yourself from that? Well, you remain in Christ. To remain in Christ, as Paul says, there are some things that you will have to pursue. There are some things that you have to fight for. There are some things that you have to take hold of. There are some things that you have to guard against. And there's some things that you have to turn away from. And if you do, then you will bear much fruit. And the good news is that we don't have to think up the fruit. It's not our idea. It's God's idea. And it's not up to us. It's not under our power that the fruit is produced. It's God's power working in us. Ephesians chapter 2, we're God's handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works And God's already prepared in advance for us to do them. We have gifts, we have talents, we have treasure, we have lots of things that God has given to us that invested in his kingdom will bear fruit. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about um, Paul's, uh, Paul mentions that there's a very real danger that some will abandon the faith. We looked briefly at the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4. And just as a side note, not in my notes, um, I think we, we can overemphasize the abandoning, the walking away, the turning away, and, and never even mention, and I'm certainly guilty of this, the, the fact that God fights for you. you realize that? There's a battle that is waging in the heavenlies for your soul. And and it is, that is a spiritual truth that should encourage all of us. When you have given your heart to Christ, when you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an army of angels that are encamped around about you, that are fighting for you, And while there's a danger, we need to be aware of it, but we need not be afraid of that. The parable of the the soils is found in Mark chapter 4, and it describes Jesus describing the condition of the human heart. And, And it's very important because we make spiritual decisions in our heart. He describes six different soils. He says the seed, the word, uh, is the seed that's thrown. And it lands in soil. It lands in our heart, the word of God. And the first is is the path, and it's so hard that the seed doesn't even penetrate it. Then there's five other soils. The second, he describes in this way in verse 16, It's like seed sown in rocky places. People hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And so when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, they hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, and that makes it unfruitful. In, in, in context with John chapter 15, fruit's super important to God. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, they hear the word and accept it, and they produce fruit. They produce a crop. There's three types of soil here. There's the soil that produces 30 times, there's the soil that produces 60, and there's the soil that produces 100 times what's sown. Now, why am I going, why am I covering this? Well, interwoven throughout the entire chapter 6 is one of the most powerful risks that you and I will face. It is listed in the third soil, 
And the risk is money and possessions, wealth and possessions. In verse 5, he describes people who have been robbed of the truth and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In verse 9, he says that those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In verse 10, he says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. And in verse 17, he tells Timothy to command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain. Why? Well, because wealth can cause people to be arrogant and can cause people to lose sight of God's ultimate control, as Jake was just talking about. He is in control of all things, including every detail of your life. And I find it interesting that Paul takes the time and I could have preached three sermons on this because it's, I could have really stretched this out and really come at you hard. But the truth is, it's all kind of encompassing here. Paul takes the time to warn Timothy and the entire church of this very real risk. The truth is, though, the Bible talks about money and possessions more than any other single topic. In fact, there are over 2,300 verses in the Bible on how to deal with money and possessions. Compare that to just over 600 verses on prayer. Just over 450 verses on faith. And depending on your version that you love the most, between 310 and 551 on love. 15% of everything that Jesus said dealt with money and possessions. 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of every 10 verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. Isn't that interesting? And yet it's one of the number one complaints of people about church. They're always talking about money. Hmm. Well, I'm a financial planner and I talk about money all the time, so I'm just totally comfortable just talking about money. So with that in mind, let's go back to... Uh, Verse 2b, if you will, these are the things that you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, why are you always talking about money? Well, then you're conceited and you understand nothing. And you have an unhealthy interest in controversies. Why are you always talking about money? And quarrels about words. That results in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. And here's a big reason why people struggle. It's because there's a really big market out there of Christian leaders who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, I want you to see in verses 2 and 3 here, Paul says to teach and insist on. And if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with, what? Sound instruction of Christ Jesus and godly teaching. 
So, as we look at this entire passage, once again, we're just going to break it down into three parts here. There are two lies about money, and there is one truth listed here about money. And so what I, what I want to do is go to the Gospels. Let's see if he's telling us to see what, to, to, to um, uh, teach on what Jesus said, which would be godly teaching also, then let's see what Jesus had to say. The first lie here that's exposed is that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's bad theology. I'm not going to go so far as to say that's false teaching. You could certainly make a case for that. But at best, it's just bad teaching. The prosperity message is, is bad theology. If you just serve God, then everything will work out for you financially. That's just bad theology, okay? Um, in fact, the opposite is found in the Bible. As Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble, lots of different troubles, including financial problems will come your way. This isn't new. In fact, in the days of Jesus' ministry, there were two very wealthy people groups within the Jewish culture. It was the tax collector uh, who was a traitor to their people, and it was taught and understood that they were actually beyond redemption. They could not be saved because of their, uh, of, of their decision. Uh, and then there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were the other most wealthy people. They were also the most considered the most religious people. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus says this, as he taught, verse 38, he says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets, but they devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. They will be punished most severely. God doesn't respect them for their wealth. He doesn't respect them and so they're wealthy. In fact, it's the, it's the opposite. Because of their wealth, they have become arrogant. They think that it has become the means of their financial gains. Now, immediately following this, and this passage has a parallel in Luke uh, chapter 20. It, that, that ends chapter 20. Um, what picks up in Mark uh, chapter 12 and verse 41 starts Luke chapter 21, uh, they are virtually identical. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now, taught on this a, a couple of times, even though they're back to back, this is two different scenes. We don't know how much time is in between here, but... Uh, based on, on the setting here, um, this is not at the same time. This is sometime after. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor woman, poor widow, pardon me, came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more to the treasury than all of the others. She gave out of her, they gave out of her their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, if, in, in context, in this setting, this is Wednesday of Passion Week. And in the record of that day, Wednesday, this is the last public writing or description of Jesus' ministry. He's in the temple, teaching all around the temple all day long. Immediately following this, they go across the valley, up on the, the mountainside. They're looking over the temple. All of Mark chapter 13 is what we call the Olivet Discourse. 
where he talks about end times. The next day is upper room teaching, and two days after that, or two days after this, Jesus is killed. So that's the setting here. This is the time. I find it very interesting that the last recorded moments of Jesus' public ministry, he's standing watching people give. Shouldn't be surprised by that because 2,300 verses in the Bible talk about money. But he is. Some observations here. He doesn't say anything negative about the rich people. He's not condemning the rich people. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, just tell the people who are wealthy how they should behave. He doesn't say anything wrong about them. For the woman, he doesn't tell his disciples, hey, there's, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Give everything. He, he doesn't say, this is your model. Whatever you have, give it all to the temple. He doesn't say that. It's just an observation. Another thing that's interesting here is the woman, she's choosing to give. She doesn't make an excuse and say, well, this is all I've got. I can't give it all. I need. No, she participates in the temple worship in giving. She doesn't make excuses for herself. It's a very interesting story. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I would submit to you that this woman has come to the place where she is content. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we take nothing out of it. You never see the hearse with the U-Haul, Right? Did you hear about the woman who, at her husband's funeral, he said, I, I, I want to take everything with me. I'm taking all my money with me. And so she slipped a check into his suit pocket before they closed the casket. You bring nothing in. You take nothing out. Everything that we have is from God. If you have food and clothing... Look at this. This is not a suggestion. This is not a command. It's a statement. We will be content. Are you there yet? Are you content with what you have? Second lie. The love of money is a lie. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not money that's the root. It's the attitude towards money. It's the love of money. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, we've already seen what Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, but look once again at just verses 18 and 19. Those who are like seed sown in thorns, they hear the word, but worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth, and desire for other things, they come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Could that be what Paul is talking about? About foolish and harmful desires? Falling into traps? people being ruined and destroyed, wandering from the faith and piercing themselves with many griefs. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has a lot to say about money and possessions. We'll probably be there in June. <laughs> I don't know. He begins by talking about the public display of righteousness and then immediately relates it to money. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward. So when you give to the needy, 
Don't announce it with trumpets as hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. What you have is not for show. If it is, then what you really want is temporal. You just want people to see what you got. And if that's all you're after, then you got what you want. People can see it. Later he says this in verse 19, Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy. I want to challenge you to use the word vermin at some point this week. (laughs) For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This world is not our home. If you're a believer, this world isn't your home. It is temporal. You're just passing through. But you're still here. And so you have a temptation to to start to view this as all that there is and the most important thing. I find it interesting. He immediately goes to this. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is dark, then that's a really great darkness. It's a very, very dangerous place to be. Immediately within the same chunk here, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus is talking about money and possessions here in this context. The concept is, what are you focused on? What are you looking at? What are you looking for? Are you focused on eternal things? Or temporal things? Are you constantly looking for the things of this world? What does it take to get things? Money. What are your eyes focused on? Because where your eyes are is where your loyalty is. And you see this played out in Mark chapter 10 with the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus asking for what must I do to earn eternal life? Jesus quotes him because he knows where he is. He's a rule follower. All I need to do is keep the list. I'm a religious person. So he gives him the Ten Commandments or a few of them. He's also a liar because he says, I've kept them all. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing that you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now, that's not not a a, a, uh, command for us to, oh, then we have to sell everything we have. No, Jesus knew exactly where this guy was. He knew his God was money, not God. And so we weren't right to the heart of the matter. Jesus is always concerned about the heart. It's exposed as his face falls and goes away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now look again at what Paul says. But you, man of God, flee from that. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 
fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There is one truth here. It's this. Your wealth comes from God. Your wealth comes from God. We are blessed to be living in the wealthiest nation of the world. That is true. Regardless of where you fit financially or income-wise, you're already at the top in relation to the world. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world. Notice he doesn't condemn them. Command them to give it all away. No, he doesn't say that. Command them that they're bad people. No, he doesn't say that either. He just says, command them to not be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth because it's uncertain. Just ask anybody who is involved in crypto currency today about how they feel about it today versus one year ago. But to put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything, look at this, for our enjoyment. God doesn't consider wealth bad. God doesn't consider money bad. God doesn't consider possessions bad. In fact, he sees them as blessings. Why? Because he loves us. We're stuck here on this earth. We might as well enjoy it, right? We just can't make it our God. That's the deal. That's the difference between the rich young ruler and the mature believer. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is really interesting how we can take, I mean, so, so much of this letter, this chapter is straight from the mouth of Jesus. He's quoting him all along as he goes. Jesus completes his teaching on money and possessions in Matthew chapter 6 with this, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying... Add a single hour to your life? No, in fact, you would probably subtract some. Verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Where is your faith? Where is your trust? Where is your confidence? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. God knows you need them. God's going to take care of you. It's where is your faith? Where is your trust? Where is your confidence? Where is your heart? You see, if you run after wealth and possessions, then you're setting yourself up for worry and strife The truth is this, and the worship team can come. God owns everything. He is in total control. And everything we have comes 
from him. And you could, Mike, I mean, you could drill to China on that. I mean, the, the favor that you have with your boss or your employer, the fact that you got a phone call and a job interview, the fact that you um, were privileged enough to have a particular education that qualified you for, I mean, you can go all the way there and say, if not for God's favor on your life, you wouldn't have the shoes on your feet. What he wants for us is to recognize that and to trust him. That's what God wants of us. And part of the deceitfulness of wealth is that we can so easily shift our trust and our confidence to ourselves. You know, I got, I got this. You know, I've been here for 25. There isn't anything I haven't seen. I know exactly what to do. I don't need to pray about that. I don't need to worry about that. I don't, no, no, I don't need God to help me with that. I've got this all figured out. You see how easily when, you're, when you have wealth and possessions and you don't need to, to worry about where the rent check's going to come or the mortgage payment or, or, or the food bill or whatever, it's so much easier to, to see it's because of you and lose sight of the fact that it's really because of him. Pastor Brandon Park of First Baptist in Raytown, he's the founder of a ministry called Life Coach Discipleship. He wrote this in Church Leader Magazine. There are 500 Bible verses pertaining to the topics of faith and prayer, and yet 2,350 Bible verses on money. Why? Because God knows that our attitude towards money is an indication of where our heart is with God. We will either follow after gold or God, and we cannot serve two masters. We will either turn to our wallet or worship when we look to the source of our security. But we have to remember, he says, Money is to be a resource. It is not to be your source. In my opinion, that's really where this is couched. Why do people get so worked up when the church talks about money? As if it's wrong. Well, because it's my money. Because I need it to live. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. Here's what Paul would say to you. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain. But to put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Mature believers understand that their life is not their own. And that includes your money and your possessions. Everything you have is a gift from God. You bring nothing in, you take nothing out. You are nothing more than a steward of what God has loaned to you. And today we're talking about money. 
and wealth and possessions. But the same thing applies to your gifts and your talents. Those are also possessions, by the way. But in his grace and his goodness, God has freely given to us many valuable things. And he expects them to be used. And some things are used just for our enjoyment. Praise God. Other things are to be used ultimately to further his kingdom. And remember, he already has a plan for their use. You don't have to figure that out. You just need to remain in him, listen, and obey. And so what he's asking is, are, well, where's your trust? Because he's trusting you ultimately to be obedient. And while godliness is not a means to financial gain, <clears throat> there are some promises that go along with obedience. Even in your finances. Malachi chapter 3. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. He's specifically talking about money to where you are fed so that there would be food in my house. Test me on this, he says. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. And I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. And the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land. I mean, that's one command followed by multiple promises. And so sadly, we look so much at the commands and we completely refuse to look at the promises that follow. That's like five or six promises that follow one command. God is rich in blessing. But I also say this, because this is the area that he allows us to test him. It's as if he says, I know this is going to be hard. I'm not arguing with you on whether this is a difficult command. Because the basics of life, food, shelter, clothing, all of these needs are hardwired in us and we need them and we need financial resources to get them. And so now we've got this unseen God that's asking us just to give away 10% of what I have I mean, that's essentially the argument. How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to pay my bills with if I give it away? That's a great question. Test. Test him. He's okay with that. You should. You should test him on this. He's faithful. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. It's a promise. Each of you should give, though, what you have decided in your heart to give. Don't give reluctantly, under compulsion. All right, I got, because the pastor says, or because I got to do this. Okay, I'll do it. You know, keep it. I don't need your money. We don't, Dan, close your ears. We don't need <laughs> your money. If that's your attitude, stick it in your pocket and don't let the door hit you on the way out because you've got a heart problem. But God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because, you know, hey, God, this is yours anyway. You just asked me to give it to you. Okay, here you go. That's, hey, that's awesome. That's a blessing. That's a blessed attitude. And look at this. God's able to bless you abundantly. So then in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10. Truly, I tell you, this is right on the heels of the rich young ruler 
No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. We're talking about possessions here. Along with persecutions, those are going to come too in this life, you'll have trouble. And in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus is, is categorizing here, I'm going to bless you here, and you're going to get eternal life also. Test me on this, I promise. And, and I, I was going over this with, with Aaron this morning, I was thinking, how many people at Mill City Church have had to release relationships when they came to the Lord? Whether it was here or in, in another church when you gave, however that is. This is your promise because God knows you need relationships. And he also knows that when you cross over into a relationship with him, you're going to lose some of those relationships because the road is narrow and the gate is small and, and very few people take it. And so you, he's replacing all of that with the church. Well, if he's going to replace relationships, why would he not? replace possessions or, or money or however that, it's the same concept. I am going to hit this last one because I've got time. I've got three minutes. <laughs> um, we teach expositionally here. That means we take it verse by verse. I say it all the time. So we take the issues as they come. And uh, the truth is, uh, and, and I, I apologize if that, if that was overly harsh, what I said just a few moments ago. Uh, hopefully it made a point to those that uh, uh, live there. But um, we don't have a problem with money here because we don't have a problem with money here. I do not have a problem having this conversation with you. I believe it is... Uh, if it's in the Bible, then it, we should talk about it. And if it's not in the Bible, then we, it's, you know, take it or leave it. But this is in the Bible. This is good teaching. This is wise teaching. This is godly counsel. This is teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is confirmed. What Paul wrote is confirmed by, by Jesus' words. That's awesome. But the truth is, we have been incredibly blessed here financially. Um, we have an incredibly generous church here. I asked Dan, I don't know who gives uh, other than my staff and leaders. Um, that's part of spiritual maturity. And, um, but as far as who gives in the congregation, um, I choose not to know that. Um, it is a requirement for, for members to, to be givers, but we don't collect tax returns and we don't do the math. So what I ask from Dan, um, each, uh, each year I have to, we have to submit uh, financials to the bank and they ask, they ask for um, uh, giving units is what we call them, giving units. So Sandy and I and Emily are a unit, for example. Um, Michael and Ashley are on their own, and they're their own unit. Um, but So I ask Dan, okay, tell me how many units we have and how many consistent givers do we have? That would mean somebody that, on a very systematic basis, is a regular giver. Okay, well, how many committed givers do we have? What I mean by that is, you know, it's not 20 bucks a week. It's not, it's a noticeable number that's, you know, not rounded off kind of thing. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a real number that shows there's a commitment. There's, there's something different there. And what we have found is that our consistent and committed givers are like really close. 
we don't take an offering here. And that, the reason for that is um, when we first started the church in the little church, we were so small and we had so many chairs in there. We just had one aisle and everybody's pretty much sitting on top of each other. And I'm like, I'm not going to pass a plate here. People are already skeptical because we're a new church and I know what they think. And so we're not doing that. We're going to teach tithing. We're going to teach obedience and we're just going to trust the Lord. I'm going to be a tither and I'm going to be committed uh, and obedient in that way, and from the top down, that's how organizations go. And from day one, we have really never struggled, and um, and it's worked for us. And I had one, our district superintendent said, well, you know, if you pass a plate, people will throw 20 bucks in there. And I said to him, what am I going to do with 20 bucks? I mean, Really? That's teaching disobedience. If I allow you to just throw 20 bucks at the plate, you know, I'd rather just take it out and give it back to you because you're not obeying God. If that's what you think, I'm I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt that you've not been taught the truth. And so I'm gonna be committed to teaching the truth. And I'll tell that story as as a way of making a point. God honors this. He honors obedience is what it, what it's at. But the reason I pulled the scripture is the Philippian church understood this concept. And Paul writes this, it was good. This is the tail end of this letter. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And Paul had a job at that point. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. That's why I teach obedience. That's why I teach obedience in giving is because I want the Lord to have his hand on your life in every way, including your finances. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory. My God will supply all your needs because he owns it all. And if your trust is in him and your obedience is to him, then you release a floodgate of blessing in whatever. It doesn't mean you're going to have a million dollars. It may mean that your car runs longer than it should. <laughs> it may mean that your shoes don't wear out for some reason. It happened to the Israelites. It could mean that you get that phone call from that employer. It could mean that You get selected for the promotion and the person more qualified than you for whatever reason doesn't. And you're like, man, I don't know how this happened. I'll tell you how it happened. It's God's favor on your life. And that's what I want. I say this often. God's hand can be in three places. It can be on you. It can be off of you. Or it can be against you. And one of those areas where God's hand is super important to all of us is in the area of finances. And he says, test me on this. You just watch and see. If you're obedient in this way, then my hand can rest on your life and you will understand in a way that you cannot in any other way. Don't take my word for it. Take his. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your blessing on our life. 
Thank you for telling us the truth. And thank you, God, that you do care about our life here on this earth. And that you do provide for us things for our enjoyment. I thank you that you recognize when things are additionally difficult and you make allowances for that. You talk about it and then you give us permission to test you. And God, I pray uh, right now that uh, your hand would continue to stay squarely on this church financially. I thank you that we don't want for anything here. That you've blessed us with a congregation that loves you and serves you, obeys you. And God, I pray for those that are in this room right now that don't know you or that are far from you. That even in a, a message like this, in a topic like this, you can still speak. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I, I want to bring up something that is a typical question. And it's a legitimate question. As we look at these scriptures and we, we read about God's hand and his blessing and his favor, a common question that comes up is, well, what about so-and-so? What about, what about the people that live in an impoverished area of the world? How does that apply to them? <clears throat> and the truth is, I don't have a very good answer to that question. Um, but I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. And there's a very real enemy out there that likes to take hot topics and turn them against God. And this just happens to be one of them. And my question to you is, if we can set that aside, where are you with God? Where are you with God? If you just had a moment with God, which you do right now, what decision have you made have you come to a place where you are willing to acknowledge the truth that he is in ultimate control of every aspect of your life? Have you come to a place where you're willing to trust him with everything in your life, most importantly, your eternity? Have you made a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life? If you haven't, or if you, you did at one point, and, and as you're just taking a moment with the Lord, you know you're just not, you're not right with him. Whatever that means to you, you know it because you, your heart will tell you the truth. If that's where you are, praise God. He's got you right where he needs you to be, to be honest with him. And I'd like to pray for you. If you just 
sign of an upraised hand, just slip up your hand. I'd like to pray for you. If there's anybody here this morning, thank you. Praise God. It's awesome. Anybody else? the Lord. Well, let's stand together and I'm just going to I'm going to lead us in a prayer if that's you and you, you can just pray along with me and dear Heavenly Father I hear your voice I see your words and you see me right where I am. You see where I struggle. You see where I doubt. I ask for your forgiveness. And I ask for your help. I want to be right with you. I put my confidence and my faith and my trust in you. In Jesus' name.